0: God, help us to be committed uh, to the virtue of humility, to serving others, just as your son Jesus did. Help us to give our lives away for your glory and for your purposes, just as your son Jesus did. God, help us to be more like Jesus, less like the old nature and the old sinful self-centeredness of our brokenness, of our sin. Forgive us of our failures, and God, just draw us close to you. Help us to know your purpose for our lives and be about it. Father, we just thank you for this day, for this opportunity to celebrate Palm Sunday. God, pray that you would receive our worship this morning. God, that you would draw near to us, draw us near to you. Father, use Ben and the message that he speaks today just to help us to see you in new and fresh ways, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for worshiping
1: Matt said, we're going to take a break from Genesis for two, three weeks. Um, we're going to walk through kind of some of the events of Easter for, for several reasons, um, but the main one is I want to make sure that we um, know what Easter is about and, and what this is. So, sorry, John chapter 12, verse 12 is where we're going to be this morning. If you've grown up in church, you've heard Palm Sunday, you probably know what Palm Sunday is about, Uh, It's this time when we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem for his final week of life And we call it the triumphal entries But I believe this is probably one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible In fact, let's take a vote really quick Uh, So those heading titles on your Bibles, if you have a Bible that's with you uh, Those are added on, right? Those are not in the scriptures Those are added on to kind of help us sort through these things So if your title on top of this says triumphal entry, let's see those hands Okay, if it doesn't say triumphal entry, what does y'all say? Perfect, yeah, perfect. I grew up and it was the triumphal entry, that's what it was called, which is great. But the reality is, like Matt said, is what Jesus is doing here is something far different uh, he's coming into Jerusalem. He's coming in as a king. He is a certainly the king of everything, but he's coming in in such a unique way that it would have stood out to the people who had first heard this thing. And so I learned in, in uh, college, my professor made us put a question mark <laughs> right behind triumphal entry. So instead of triumphal entry, it was triumphal entry. And if we come with that to read this text, it starts to show itself to us and what, what the Lord is, has for us. So I want to pray, and then we're going to read through this passage and, and dive into it together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for texts like this. God, where we can look at it and we can dig in and we can study your word and we can understand, God, that you come as a humble servant, as a lamb to be slaughtered, and not slaughtered meaninglessly, but but for our sake. God, I pray as we look at this passage of scripture and we see the humility of you, Jesus, and we see the humility of of one of your disciples, Andrew that you would help us to look into our hearts and to reflect on our own lives and to see the sacrifices we make, the one people that we should be bringing and telling about you. Grow us in you this morning, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that he had done uh, and had been done to him. So we have this large crowd that shows up. And because we're just jumping into John in the middle of it, we need some context as to what's happening. If you look backwards in John just a little bit, what you'll see is, is Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty cool thing, right? If this word starts spreading that a guy was dead and then he's been resurrected, it's going to draw a crowd. But you also have all of those gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So this large crowd is now all looking for Jesus. I love in this passage there's not one denial that Lazarus wasn't really dead. Everybody says, no, he was dead. We smell them. He was in the tomb. He was dead. Jesus resurrected that guy. You could go talk to Lazarus if you wanted to go talk to Lazarus. And Jesus and him were seen hanging out and, and, and talking together. And so there's this renewed interest in Jesus because of resurrection. A little foreshadowing the Lord's doing. And so this crowd knows he's going to Jerusalem. And we also know that the religious leaders are ready to kill Jesus, but it's Passover. And they don't really want to deal with Jesus until after Passover. So one of the things Jesus does with the triumphal entry is he forces their hand. right? Every passage of scripture so far, Jesus has said, it's not my time. It's not my time. The hour hasn't come. The hour hasn't come. The hour hasn't come. And then now suddenly we get here and the hour has come. And so Jesus is forcing these religious leaders' hands by going into Jerusalem, by drawing these large crowds of people. This has also upset the Romans, right? If you have somebody coming into Jerusalem saying he's the real king, then the king is going to get mad. And what we see here is that we don't get to deal with Jesus on our terms. We must deal with Jesus on his terms. There's a whole sermon there. But it's not the main point, and so I just wanted to... (laughs) say that, right? We, we don't deal with Jesus on our terms, we deal with Jesus on his terms. So then this large crowd begins laying palm branches on the road and waving them at Jesus. We know from other gospel accounts they're also throwing their garments on the road. All of this is the sign of a king who's come back from a victory battle. But there's some things that are odd about the way they're doing this. Palm leaves are not associated with Passover. They're associated with the Feast of of, uh, Booths, not the Passover. So that their waving palm leaves is something odd that we need to pick up on. If you remember, who's heard of the Maccabean Revolt? Anybody? History buffs? maccabean revolt judas maccabeus between malachi which is the last book of the old testament and then when the angel shows up to Zechariah, in that 400 year period there was these people who had overthrown the jewish people and they had desecrated the temple and judas maccabeus and, and some of the israelites had this miraculous thing where they took over the temple cleared them out of jerusalem it was this huge miracle that the lord had given them and so because of this they celebrated judas maccabeus i'll give you one guess what they did they waved palm branches In fact, coins that were minted during that period ended up having palm branches on them as a sign of a victorious king. And so when they're waving palm branches in the story, what we see them acknowledging is now Jesus has come, right? Judas freed us from Antipas and some of the other guys who were there. Now Jesus is coming to overthrow Rome, and he's going to instill his kingdom, his political, military, physical kingdom here right now, and Jerusalem is going to be the center of it. He is the king in the cloth of Judas Maccabee is what they're saying. But that's not what Jesus is doing. They, they also know, like from Daniel's prophecies, that the Messiah is supposed to come at, at any point in time right around this area when Jesus comes. And they know that Jesus has just raised a man from the dead. So they're doing some math, like, okay, all of these things are happening together right here. This is Jesus coming in, this king who's going to rule. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to overthrow all the oppressive countries. And we're going to be a part of this kingdom with Jesus. So let's honor him with these palm branches, these palm leaves. And so they start yelling, Hosanna, which means something like, let us praise or, or praise him. And, and, and at this time, in, in the Jewish people had a hymn book. It's the Psalms. And there was these Psalms, the Hallel Psalms. Hallelujah. Hallel means he praised or praise. So these Hallel Psalms, and these quotes are taken from Psalm 118, which are the songs that they're singing at Passover, right? So their Christmas carols are what they're singing to Jesus. That's the equivalent. And so it's all of these things that are kind of coming together at this one point that they have clear expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. He is the king who they think is physically and politically at this moment in time going to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish a physical kingdom in Jerusalem right then and there. But Jesus does some other things. He doesn't overthrow the Roman kingdom at that very moment. He doesn't set up a throne to rule on at that very moment. He doesn't set a gold crown on his head and begin to rule over his his kingdom and the physical right at that moment. Instead, Jesus is going into Jerusalem with his eyes set upon the cross. He's not going to overthrow the Romans. Instead, he's going to overthrow sin and death. And he's not going to set up a throne to rule on. Instead, he's going to look over from the cross. He's not going to have a golden crown. He's going to have a crown of thorns. And we see that it's, it's interesting. Jesus quotes the prophecy from Zechariah 9 when he says, I'm going to come on a donkey. Right, And, and we know David, Solomon, all of the, the old Jewish esteemed kings would have rode on donkeys. So it's not saying like he shouldn't be doing that. But it's a donkey is not a war horse. It's a donkey. You ride him in times of peace. But if you're coming back from a victory or you're going out to battle, you don't ride a donkey, you ride a war horse. And if you look to Revelation, when Jesus comes back again, he's not riding a donkey there, he's riding a war horse. So it's significant that Jesus is riding this donkey because what it says is he's coming in humility. He's saying, I am absolutely the king that you think I am, but I'm not going to rule the way you think I'm going to rule this little Roman kingdom, this little Roman oppression you're dealing with is not your biggest problem. So there's a few things I want to see. Jesus is absolutely in control of what's going on. The things that happen to Jesus are not because he is out of control, but because he's in control. He's forcing people to act on his timeline. And he is absolutely the king. But the expectations of what the king was supposed to be were so off that they miss what Jesus was really doing. They miss the big picture. But there's another element to Jesus coming here that we often overlook. Josephus, who's kind of the oldest historian we have who, who can give numbers at this time, says at this time there's around 2.5 million people coming into Jerusalem to sacrifice these lambs, which means there's going to be 250,000 lambs being brought in at the time Jesus enters with a triumphal entry. So when we picture Jesus, we picture all these palm trees coming down, these people shouting, but what we don't see are the lambs that are also with Jesus and kind of scattered around the town that are being marched in. So you have all of these sacrificial lambs being marched in, and they're being led by the actual sacrificial lamb, Jesus himself. It's a powerful picture of what the Lord is doing, that the true lamb of God is coming in with all of these other lambs, and, and they just kind of miss it. They don't understand what's going on. And the disciples don't understand. I love verse 16. I love the disciples just don't get it sometimes because I I relate. And they don't get it. It's not like after Jesus dies. It's like Matt said, it's not until he's glorified that they're like, man, you remember that time Jesus walked, like he rode that donkey into Jerusalem and there was palms and all the like, like, how did we miss that? And and it's Peter who says it. We know it's Peter who says it because Peter always says dumb things. I don't know. I don't know how we missed it. Like, you remember how Jesus told us three different times that he was going to Jerusalem to die? How did we miss that? I don't know how we missed that, but they did. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, in in John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. If you want to impress your friends with big words, synoptic, it means same. They're written with very much the same style, very much the same ideas. They tell a lot of very similar stories, different ways, right? So it's one story, but they're telling it from different angles. But John's gospel is almost completely different in the way that it's written. John is writing from a cosmic point of view, looking down on it. And so for John, Jesus doesn't do miracles. He calls them signs. And they're signs that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God. And so what they're saying is Jesus did this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, that all of these people had gathered around him for a time such as this. Again, he's in control of what's going on. And so the Pharisees see this and they look at one another and they go, all of the world is going to Jesus now. And one of the biggest issues in the early church, if you've read the book of Acts, is that they have the Jewish people who are converted to Christianity, and you have the Gentile people who are converted to Christianity, and it's this sorting out of, like, well, what do the Gentiles have to do? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the Sabbath law? Do they need to do all of the feasts? And it's this wrestling of these things. And so that the world is going to Jesus is interesting. Because it's Gentiles who who do not believe in Jesus or are not in the kingdom of God just as much as Jewish people who do not believe in Jesus are not in the kingdom of God because the Bible tells us there is one way to heaven. There is one way into the kingdom. But what the Pharisees see is that Jesus' influence has spread far beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles as well. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feasts were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went to and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the Pharisees are saying the world has gone to Jesus. And then in the next verse, what we see are Greeks that are wanting to see Jesus and they're there to celebrate Passover which probably means they have cast aside their their pagan religions and they're trying to follow the Jewish way but they're not Jews by birth and so they're they're kind of doing this pseudo uh, following after Jesus as best as they can they could go into the the gentile area of the temple but they couldn't go any further in there and so they come to Philip Philip is one of the apostles and, and Philip's name is a Greek name, and so, and he's also from Bethsaida, which we're told in this passage, which means they probably can speak the same language. They're comfortable with each other. They look the same, and so they go to Philip, and they're like, "We want to see Jesus." There's a man named James Montgomery Boyce. He was a great Southern Baptist pastor. Uh, the 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 Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville is one of the oldest and kind of foundational SBC seminaries that we have, and their undergraduate school is named after John, James Montgomery Boyce. He's a very prominent man, and he would preach all over the nation at different places, and he has an, in his commentary on this passage. He talks about the different pulpits that he's been to. And he said, at some pulpits, you'll see uh, like a fan and a heater on them. At some pulpits, what you'll see are like buttons that do certain things. At some pulpits, what you'll see is a clock on the dill so that the preacher doesn't run over. And he did not mince words on how he feels about it. I won't read them to you. But he was not happy with the clocks. I'll just say that. But he said there's one pulpit in particular that stands in his mind. And it's in a small rural church somewhere way off in the deep south. When I imagined it, it was a church much like ours. And he said he would get up to preach at this pulpit, and on this pulpit was a little placard that quoted this verse. And all it said was, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so Boyce says this is his all time favorite pulpit because it reminds the church and it reminds the preacher what the job is it's not to get up and tell funny jokes and keep everybody entertained. It's not to get out at a certain time. It's not to make people feel good. It's not to make people feel bad. It's not to step on toes. It's not to heal wounds. It's not my job to save souls. The job of the preacher is to show the people Jesus. That's this passage on Palm Sunday that we have coming to us this Sunday. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. they go to Philip and that's what they request to do Philip and what does Philip do does he take them to Jesus no (laughs) he takes them to Andrew when I was ordained one of the questions I was asked was besides Jesus who is your favorite person in the Bible and I shocked the whole room when I didn't say Abraham. I didn't say Isaac. I certainly didn't say Jacob. I didn't say David. I didn't say Samson. I didn't say Solomon. I didn't say Elijah. I didn't say Peter. I didn't say James, John, Paul. I didn't say any of those people. What I said, and I hold to it, is Andrew is my favorite person besides Jesus in the Bible. And the reason I love Andrew in the Bible is every time we see him in Scripture, he has one person, and he brings them to Jesus. Every time. Andrew is Peter's brother Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist he's following John the Baptist when he hears John the Baptist say here comes the one who takes away the sins of the world and so Andrew leaves John the Baptist to go follow Jesus in that moment and the first thing Andrew does as a disciple is he goes and he gets Peter universally anybody who talks about the disciples will tell you Peter is the leader of the disciples and it's Andrew who brings Peter to Jesus What we see with Andrew is he's, there's, there's like three groups of apostles, and the closest inner circle is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Yet often what we see happen in Scripture is it's Peter, James, and John, and Andrew's left out. And not one time in Scripture is there any hint of hostility within Andrew. Not one time in Scripture is there any hint of Andrew being envious or jealous or upset that he's left out of that group. All Andrew seems to care about in the Bible is bringing even one person to Jesus. Edward Kimball. Anybody know him? He was a Sunday school teacher who got convicted about sharing the gospel. And so he goes to a shoe store and he begins sharing the gospel with a young man who's helping him with his shoes. And in the storeroom of this shoe store is where D.L. Moody was saved by Edward Kimball, by the Lord through Edward Kimball. And if you don't know D.L. Moody, D.L. Moody is Billy Graham before Billy Graham. He was a huge evangelist. In fact, tens of thousands of people have said because of his messages or his literature, the Lord has saved them. And all of that happened because Kimball went and shared the gospel with him. And in Kimball's own words, he was timid, he was soft-spoken, he was frightened, he was trembling, and he doubted that he had the courage to actually do it. But when he showed up and he shared the gospel with him, he obeyed God, the Lord brought D.L. Moody to salvation by his words. And now look at all the people that D.L. Moody brought to the Lord. Because of Kimball. It's the same with Andrew. Think of all of the people that that Peter preached to. All of the wonderful things that the Lord did with Peter don't happen unless Andrew brings Peter to the Lord. You remember the story when when Jesus is is teaching and he goes long? And everybody's upset because they're hungry? Must have been a Baptist. And so Jesus, the disciples are telling Jesus, Jesus is getting late. Everybody's kind of hungry. We should probably let them get out so they can go stand in line at whatever restaurant they're going to eat at. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, well, who has food? Now we know, right, the little boy shows up with, with loaves and with fish. But do you know who brings the little boy to Jesus? Every other apostle probably saw this little boy and was like, that's not enough food. Don't even worry about adding that. But Andrew brought the little boy to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Multiplies the fishes and the loaves. And then the last we see of Andrew is is here. Where you have these Greeks... Who are wanting to see Jesus, and it's kind of a busy time in Jesus's life—not the best week. And Jesus knows exactly what's going to go on, and he's got this crowd of all of these people who are saying "Hallelujah!" They're they're saying uh, "Glory!" Like you are the King of Kings, Hosanna! They're laying the palm trees. But what does Andrew do? Philip's scared to do it, but Andrew will do it. He brings them to Jesus. Church history tells us that that Andrew went north. And then wherever he was at, one of the, the like, governor the Roman uh, consul, whatever his name is, that was the, the leader of that area, that Andrew converted his wife to Christianity, and so he got killed for it. In fact, Andrew's the patron saint of Russia. Which is why a lot of people think he went north to go share these things, share the gospel. I desperately want to be like Andrew. I desperately want to bring people to Jesus but sometimes in our minds we think it has to be these these huge massive things where we have these this draw where if we do something then all these people will come and then once they come they'll hear about Jesus they'll hear about gospel and and maybe God will save them and certainly there's some some merit to that and certainly there's some good things to that but if we look at the Bible what we see in Andrew's life is no one person was too small no one person was too little no one person was too far gone Andrew went and brought people to Jesus and that's his legacy. So when we look to the triumphal entry, what we see here, it's just pouring out with humility. We look at Jesus at the triumphal entry, and what we see is and we need to understand is Jesus came to save sinners like you and me from our actual enemy, not just what we think is our enemy. From our actual problems that we actually have. Like I said earlier, you can look ahead to the book of Revelation, who's written by John, same John. We get a picture of Jesus riding a war horse. He's coming to finish off the enemy and to completely and fully bring about the kingdom of God. So we look at this this passage, and what we see are these these people who are dealing with Jesus in, in different ways, and so there's some questions we need to ask ourselves. What do you see in Jesus? Because there's this, this thought, there's this thing that creeps up in, in, in my heart, and in, in our hearts in, in, in general, and I see it frequently where the thought is, well, what I see in Jesus is he forgives me unconditionally, absolutely, so I don't even really have to obey him because of grace and mercy. That I know whatever I do, God is going to forgive me, so I'm just going to go do what I want. As Baptists say, we like the phrase, once saved, always saved, which doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. It means that if you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't lose that. But there is a heart change that takes place. What do you see in in Jesus? Do you see a powerful king? But that king's main purpose is to help you pursue success or, or safety or whatever it is that you feel like you want? Remember, the people who are laying down the palm branches, many of them are going to be chanting, crucify, crucify him on Friday. When they recognize that he's not the Savior they think they want, they'd rather just kill him than deal with him. What do you see in Jesus? Do you see a Savior and a King? You see Jesus on the cross calling you to confess your sins, to repent, to turn from your wicked ways, and then to take the same death sentence that he bore and come after him. Jesus says, take up your cross, and this is what he's talking about. See, many people will kill for Jesus. Many people will fight for Jesus. Many people will stand strong in their convictions and not budge for Jesus. But when Jesus calls us to die, many people will walk away. What do you see in Jesus? Someone worth dying for? Someone worth giving up all of your life to follow after Jesus? See, my prayer is, is that Jesus would save people this morning. Here. When we look at the Bible, like Matt was saying, one of the things that Christians have no room for in our life is pride. Pride. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring about things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What do you see in Jesus? Because if it brings pride in your own life, and not humility and repentance, then we may have the wrong Jesus in mind. So for some of us this morning, I think what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to repent and to turn to him, maybe for the first time. To pray and ask for forgiveness and to know that we will be saved if you repent and turn to the Lord and believe. And if that's you, like, come and talk. Let's get you discipled and, and plugged in and, and grow in the Lord. For some of you, uh, Jesus is calling you to, to repent and to turn to him, not because you're an unbeliever, because you're acting like the prodigal. You're running from God, and it's time to come back and to get right with the Lord. The good news is the gospel does both. It saves and it sanctifies. It cleans and it purges. It heals. For all of you, if you are a believer, Jesus has placed you in areas of your life where people all around you are living lives that are lost and that are dying. He has placed you around people who are hopeless and who are wounded and who are hurting and who are struggling and who are alone and are using every means of that they possibly can come up with within our world to cope with those things. But what they need most is And you and I know this if we're believers, what they need most is they need to see Jesus. And God has placed you there for them. It's not an accident. It's no more of an accident than what Jesus is doing in the triumphal entry. God has placed us in Ira. He's placed you where you work, where you live. If you're a kid, he's placed your lockers next to who your lockers are next to and who you sit next to in math class for a purpose and for a reason. Because people are hopeless without the Lord. But there's hope in the gospel. The only question we have to ask is, who do you see in Jesus? Someone who's worth obeying, bringing one person to the Lord. Like, that's not, listen, this is not a passage. It's like, pastors, you do this, and then have your church members bring people to you. It is Christians bring people to the Lord. And who knows? Who knows what God might do with that one person? Here's my challenge. If you're a believer in Jesus, for the last month, I've been encouraging you to think about who you might invite to the Easter Sunday service. Easter's next week, heads up. It's time to take action. Not because we have the power to save anybody, but because the Lord has placed us here not to be quiet. Do you hide your light under a bushel? No. No. We let it shine. God uses people like Andrew, like Edward Kimball, and like you and like me. So what I'd encourage you to do is is, is uh, there's I think Linda put offering play or offering envelopes in front of you, or grab a piece of paper and write down the name of the person that you're going to invite. And you can keep it with you if you want and pray for them. If you put it in the offering, pray my promise is I will pray for them as often as I think about it. write their name and let's see what the Lord does because the good news of the gospel is too much for us just to contain in this (laughs) largely empty room and Ira is too hurting for us to not share let's be obedient to the Lord like Andrew and let's expect a servant king to rule and reign and let's take up our cross and follow after Jesus. And what's the worst thing that'll happen to us this week? If we get made fun of, Jesus died, I think we'll be okay. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that we can look at the triumphal entry and we can know that Jesus' eyes were on the crucifixion that we can look at the triumphal entry and we can know, God, that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. And it's not just the physical death of the cross that's excruciating and, and painful, although, God, it is the most terrible way to die. It's that your wrath, your just wrath for our, just, our sin that we did, what is deserved for our sin, what's deserved for our rebellion, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, he took that wrath for us gives to us imputes to us credits us with his righteousness not because we're great not because we're awesome but because jesus is great and jesus is awesome so i pray this morning god on on when we recognize palm sunday is that we would worship you as king that we would glory in you, as Lord. That we would sing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But God, our understanding would be who the God who you actually are, not some caricature of who you are in our head, but who the Bible says you are. Your Word. Help us to worship you. God, to pray that you would place people on our hearts, and that you would give us a commitment to be obedient. That we would be like Andrew, just bringing people to you. It's in your name we pray.